You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM Community Radio in New Haven, Connecticut. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Hagen Engel. We're digging into stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. Today's episode is a live studio recording. I've invited my husband, Anru Hafkenny, in to talk with me about my recent trip to Berlin, Germany. Anru is a clinical social worker, Baba Lao, and child of Black Panther Party and Communist Party activists. His knowledge of history, systems of oppression, healing work, and of course, his close knowledge of me and my family are invaluable to me in having this conversation. I went to Berlin last week at the invitation of a German organization called Bildungswerk that does Holocaust education and reparations work, which in part is connected to Sobibor, the Nazi death camp in eastern Poland that my grandparents, Selma and Chaim Engel, escaped from back in October of 1943. I've recorded a few stories related to this over the past couple years, which you can check out on thetableunderground.com or wherever you get your podcasts. But I'm excited to have Anru with me today to talk about this trip. Hi, Anru. Hello. Good afternoon. Thank you for doing this with me again this year. Very special. Yeah. So how do you want to start? Well, actually, um, a couple of ways. So one is Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Um, <laughs> We're That's right. how we say Happy New Year, Sweet New Year mm-hmm. in Hebrew, yes. Right in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, and also happy soon to be our 20th wedding anniversary. <laughs> yes, very sweet. Wonderful thing. And then also as you were, just as introduction about their escape from Sobibor in October mm-hmm. of 1943, and this being the beginning of October, also just a recognition of the another really important anniversary um, yes. of their escape from such a place. Um, so why don't we start off on really why you went to Berlin, um, what it was about for you, and what it was like to be there, and what came out of it? Sure. Um, so a couple years ago, uh, a woman uh, named Anne Lepper contacted my grandparents when my grandmother was still alive and wanted to come visit. She works for this group that I mentioned, Bildungswerk, and um, there, she's a volunteer. All the people that work for this organization are volunteers, and they had uncovered this uh, pile of pictures um, that they found that had never been seen before, which were of a a Nazi, one of the top SS Nazi soldiers, uh, whose name was Niemann. His last name was Niemann, and he was the first um, SS who was killed during the uprising and revolt at mm-hmm. Sobibor that my grandparents were part of, which allowed many Jews to escape uh, from the camp. And her organization had found these photos in the the grandson's home, the grandson of of Niemann's home. And they were doing research to find out about, um, it it shows pictures of many Nazis that who had never been persecuted or identified before. Mm. And it also showed pictures of Sobibor, the actual camp, like the buildings, um, these were things that Nazis were not supposed to take pictures of. And um, it was it's very unusual to have this kind of documentation. And so she brought them because she wanted to show them uh, to my grandmother, who at that point was not in the best mental uh, state to, to really understand what they were and um, show them to, to me and my mom and the rest of my family. And so that began my relationship with her and this organization. Um, and uh, they, are, those photos will be um, being given to the Holocaust M- Museum in Washington, D.C., and they'll be being re- released to the public uh, in early 2020. And so that was sort of the beginning of the impetus for the trip was that they had these photos and they've been leading uh, these trips around uh, Poland and to different places to help Germans kind of come to terms with the crimes that their ancestors and country um, committed and um, because of these photos and this sort of renewed work, they are in, they were interested in creating a award in the name of my grandparents to um, bring attention to this uh, Holocaust education and memorial work that that is happening um, around Sobibor um, in a way that it hasn't happened uh, very much in the past. And so they invited me there to only a couple people from the organization had met me before and. So to meet some of the the rest of the people and to really talk about um, what would it look like to create an award? What were we trying to acknowledge? How would it how would it work? So mm-hmm. that, that was the impetus to to go there and meet them and really have some deep conversations about about that. 
Um, something that's really striking are these, the photos themselves, mm-hmm. um, and why, and why they're so important, um, and kind of the things that they'd shown. I remember you mentioning, I don't know if it was these photos, but kind of a, there's a normalcy, kind of like people living their normal lives right on the other side of the fences of these. Of inside pants. the fences. Yeah, the inside pants. the fences, mm-hmm. right. So a normalcy around that. Talk a little bit about that. But also what the trips are that this organization is doing. Like, where are they going? What is that about? What's, what are they hoping to do sure. um, in the present? Sure. Yeah, so the um, the photos, uh, what a couple of the photos, the ones that stuck in my mind when I saw them two years ago, and again, they're not open to the public yet. They will be early next year. Um there are some pictures, you know, the the Nazis had these uh, cabins and houses that were inside, like on the edge of the death camp where oh. they lived when they were there working and killing people. Um, and there's pictures of, of the Nazis and some women who I think were potentially like Polish women from the area, like oh. laughing and drinking and like oh. hanging out in oh. like they were having a party. Like you would never imagine what oh. was going on on the other, you know not very far away. I've been to this land where this is like, Uh these things are not far away. This would be like a couple doors over, you know, Mm. where people are going into gas chambers and being murdered. And, um, so yes, those are the things in the photos. And part of why the photos have been kept secret and not released yet is that they have been doing extensive research to prove, to be able to prove and document what's in the photo. So it's not just their word against somebody else's, but to say, mm. these are these people. Like we So for can some prove accountability it. for yeah. those people yeah. um, and who's still alive. And-, and just for the government and for documentation. So the, the death camp, after there was the revolt, the Nazis tore the whole thing down. So mm. many concentration camps and death camps still stand today. Mm-hmm. You can go there and see... You, I've done this myself, like stand at the door of the gas chamber, mm. walk through the barracks you know, see the, the watchtowers are still there and, you know, all those things are still there. Mm -hmm. Um, this particular extermination camp, I'm not sure if it's because it was an actual death camp and all they essentially did there was kill people, um, versus the other ones, which they could pretend were work camps or other things. Um, even though people were being killed there Mm -hmm. millions as well. Um, this one was destroyed so that they could re- just, you know, remove the evidence of it. Mm. And so there isn't very much documentation except for the 50 or so survivors, a few of whom um, described what they remembered of the layout. So they would say this right. was over here and that's over there. And of course, not everybody knew everything, right? Like you're not roaming well, it's around. it's a traumatic freely, time. Right. <laughs> so this actually gives some photo documentation to what it looked like um, mm-hmm. because there hasn't been documentation. So that's that part of the of the photos. And currently, uh, the show that you and I did last October was right after the 75th anniversary of the uprising. And mm-hmm. so I went to Poland last summer, and there's um, some photos and descriptions of what's happening at the at that la- on that land right now. And they're mm-hmm. building a memorial museum there. Uh, historically, there had essentially just been like a statue. And I, uh, when I went there in the no- late 90s, a statue, and I think maybe a few small other things, but there's going to be an actual center. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's some work that's happening there now. In terms of what was the other part of your question? The, the, what um, buildings work? Their oh, work their trips. Yeah, so we, we talked about this yeah. last year as well. People can go back and listen. But the part of their work that I feel is really intense reparation. So there's like, you know, we talk about reparations in this country a lot and, and the need for them around slavery. And so... The, the first part of the reparations work that, that I think has happened has happened in Germany is that there's this acknowledgement that the Holocaust happened and it was horrible. Like we haven't yeah. even acknowledged that really here. We yeah. can talk more about that in a second. Mm-hmm. But um, then there's this kind of historical documentation of the truth of what happened, right? And so there a lot of people are doing that and this organization is doing that. The other element of what they're doing is, is really trying to do this kind of... Um, healing work that needs to happen for all of these people now who are descendants of Nazis and Mm. or descendants of people who were collaborators or who Mm. are just part of German society at whatever level their their families participated or or didn't in the war. And so they bring people from Mm. they bring Germans to different sites. The the trip I went on part of it with them last year was to Sobibor and some of the towns around it. They, take, they do trips to different areas, but they've done this really deep research into not only documenting the history of what happens, but having photographs of people 
and their testimonies about things in their own words. So some of these are survivors, some of them are not, but uh, different things that have been documented. And so as they bring people through these places, they're actually bringing you into the story, into the feeling of Mm. what happened. So you'll stand in front of the synagogue and they'll say, on this date, this is what happened. This is what it looked like. This is what happened here. Mm. And then on this date, uh, we were in a town called Vlodava. You know, they said on this date uh, in 1942 or 43, there were, um, there. you know, this town had 6,000 Jews in it. They were 90% of the town. On this day, all of their children were told to go. They were told to send their children to gather up in this field for some reason. You know, there was some mm. like pretend reason given. And um, they were told to go to the sports field next to the school. And so then we said, okay. And then we walked over to the sports field next to the school and we stood looking mm. at the sports field. And then we heard the story of a girl who was a young, maybe 14 year old, talking about how her family interpreted this demand to send them there why they struggled with should they or should they not let their kids Mm. go there, then letting her and her sister go, and then her giving testimony of how they were then marched to Sobibor. And, Mm. you know, and so then we went on this bus and drove over to the train platform at Sobibor. And we stood there Mm. and we heard about why, you know, what happened there and Mm. and how many Jews went through there and, and started to understand, like, there was no way that people in this town didn't know what was going on, Mm -hmm. right? Like, it's you can hear about these stories and think, oh, it's it's far in the middle of the woods and right. nobody knew. But when you're standing in this place and you're realizing that 90% of a town was shipped away somewhere that's only two miles away mm-hmm. and that you could smell the smells of people's bodies mm-hmm. burning that obviously you're going to notice when 6,000 people are no longer in a town of, mm-hmm. you know, or 5,000 people are no longer the in a town of 6,000 people, then you start to comprehend this in a different way and what, what collaboration means, what silence means, you know? And, and so, mm. yeah. And so there's a reparations piece there around them doing this work with their own people of coming to terms with what they did and mm-hmm. and really like making it very living and present and then also making space for them to process like how could what what are the feelings that come up the learnings how do people think about and reveal you know things about their own family and then how do you bring it into today you know like what's happening today and not only with their own healing with the the crimes of the past but but what's going on today and um mm-hmm. you know and we we talk about you and I talk about this and we did last year when we when I went back to Poland but thinking about how are we complicit today? You know, how as ICE is rounding people up, as um, people are being locked up in prison for, for not, for, you know, for nothing, um, how are we being silent? How these prisons are in our communities, right? How are we being silent? And right. it's not to say that all the crimes are equal or the same, but, but they're all horrific things. Um, and it's all injustice. It's all injustice, yeah. Something that's, that's super powerful is that very often in the conversations, here around reparations, um, there's these some differences, and one one that's highlighted just right now is that in in Germany, this healing piece is being done with people who are descendants of those who committed crimes, right? right. Enacted the in, injustice, and part of the way that they're doing that is by making visible what was made invisible, right? So Sobibor right. being leveled, oh, it's invisible, you know, it's not there, but like right. bring it back up, bringing you know families disappearing place of business, um, land shifting over. And so the part of the healing is actually making visible and bringing people into that so it's then embodied again, right? Oh, right. If I'm in this place, I can't pretend I don't see what's on the other side of that fence. Right. I don't, I, there's no way to imagine something different. I have to face that. But that this process is also about their healing and transformation um, in addition to ways that, you know, Germany has, um, done some other things to for reparations in terms of monies or in terms of these systems and um even in terms of like you said before like all germans know that today whether they agree with it or not right because there are people who are still embroiled in white supremacy there that this was bad right and that that people see this as bad right and the the government makes sure that everybody that that's the line right and then how that's dealt with can be done in creative ways. And that is a fundamentally different thing here, both in terms of slavery, but all kinds of oppression that have happened going back to, you know, genocide of indigenous people, um, going back to all the, the kind of immigration policies that are happening. Right. So, well, right. These are, these are things that actually 
because of the goodness of the United States, change can happen, right? Oh, the institution of slavery can be abolished through these legal means. And so as if right, it's and we have the myth, we have the myth of of that right. of that here. Yeah, right. I mean, it's interesting. You know, I posted on social media to ask people. You know, I was posting photos along while I was taking this trip, and then afterwards saying that we were going to do this episode together. And asking people, like, what do you want to know about? And a lot of people said they want to hear more about reparations. And I think, um, you know, I certainly don't know all the historical facts about Germany, what the country and government have done well and not well. Right. I'm sure there's lots more to know than what I know from my personal uh, family history. Um, and I'm not going to purport to, like, talk about all mm-hmm. of that. Right. But just in these very fundamental ways, like... Germany lost the war, and so then they were held accountable to say they did something horrible, right? And that it's and the generation that came after the war, I think, is sort of informally called the guilty generation. Like mm. they are acknowledged as being guilty at whatever level they participated, mm-hmm. and they felt guilty. And so then there were all these actions that happened after the war where people really, um, in different ways, tried to deal with that guilt. Um, as, as a people, as individuals and as a government. And so that doesn't exist here. Like there are people who deny, you know, that slavery was bad and there's not an acknowledgement of like the wealth, right. That, Mm -hmm. that was gained out of the 400 years of slavery. Like that is something, even though that hasn't all been repaired at all, but like really there was some acknowledgement that, that there was this very intentional profiting off of stealing and killing Mm -hmm. Jews and disabled people and uh, people who are gay and other folks, and so um, by the Nazis, and so just that part of like acknowledging that these crimes happened and yeah. and and why they happened and and what happened doesn't hasn't really happened here. Mm. And then the idea, you know, I, I think reparations are all these different things. There's like the government thing. There's the money piece. There's uh, the education. Then there's the memorial piece. And then this piece that this organization and others like it are doing. Where can you imagine if? descendants of plantation owners were doing deep historical research about the crimes of their ancestors and then bringing other white people to those places and standing on that ground and teaching them in the voices of the Africans who were enslaved uh, in all, you know, the children, the adults, the people Mm -hmm. in the house, the people in the fields, like people describing being whipped people, like all these different things. Right. That's the level of what they're doing there. And that's another piece of reparations. And I think that that um, ownership of the truth of the crimes and the and that um, acceptance that that's their work to do, you know, with their people. um, That's another piece of it. And, And I think in the in the time we live in where there's like, thankfully, more talking about systemic racism, about um about about racism and about mass incarceration and about starting to be bring the truth of our history a little bit more into public conversation than it has been in in years past um there's a need for that right and there's a need for white people and to do that work with other white people um as part of that healing work of this country in particular people whose families have have been here over those generations, but also people who are benefiting just from white privilege in this, in this country. So yeah, it's been powerful to, to see that. Um, There's kind of one other piece I want to highlight is the comes out of even those pictures is the kind of normalcy of it, right? People are hanging out, right? This is what's happening. And even these things around, which I'm sure we, we talked about before, like the kind of stumble stones that are in Germany and other different parts of Europe, which, which give a sense of, place and people and lives. And so, yes, there are the like systems at play, right? The big gears of an institution of government and things, but there's also, well, this is how like our neighbors and these people and people live their lives kind of alongside of it um, as a part of the recognition, you know, Mm -hmm. the kind of ownership of, of where um, healing needs to happen, where acknowledgement needs to happen, like the kind of making that visible, you know, we can't, we can't just kind of pawn off oppression as just this big this machine thing. that happened yeah. somewhere else. Yeah, um, and so for people who don't know, the stumble stones are these like bronze squares that are kind of set within the bricks on the sidewalk that say, here lived this person at this time, they were killed in Auschwitz on this date, or here worked this person. 
And so uh, it's just a way to remember. And how powerful would that be if those were all over where we live, both for indigenous people whose mm -hmm. land this was, as well as um, the, uh, you know, in front of people's homes and things right. like that. I right. know people, their ordinary lives come across it. Right. Versus like, here's the monument to right. it over here, which is powerful and important, but actually in people's daily lives, they, they stumble over them. Yeah. Um, so your, your Omanopa um, spent a lot of time and energy really telling their story. Mm. Um, and kind of you continue to do so in, in similar ways and in different ways, kind of tell their story and what it is. But what, how do you kind of see what your legacy is um, based on really their lives and, and uh, the Holocaust and as well as kind of new life that's, that's found and created? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I think living in the shadow of this my whole life has obviously had an enormous impact on me and how I view the world and how I um, think about what's possible in, in the horrible ways of what can happen in a society and what's possible in terms of people surviving and, and rebuilding life after such hor like genocide, experiencing genocide. Um, and so that's had an enormous impact on me. Um, I think it's only, you know, I've been very dedicated to doing social justice work in different ways my whole life, I think, because of that. And it's only sort of in recent years that I've started to think about how do I do this work in Jewish spaces. Um, I didn't really grow up in very many Jewish spaces, so that wasn't sort of my, I had a few friends who were Jewish, but I grew up in New Haven in this very like racially mixed, culturally mixed community. And so those weren't sort of my natural uh, spaces that I just fell into. I didn't grow up going to Hebrew school or being part of a temple or things. So um, it's sort of more recently that, especially this past year after my grandmother passed away, that I have started to feel this responsibility to carry on the story mm -hmm. as really that generation is gone. You know, my grandparents spent many decades talking in schools and telling their story, uh, showing the movie Escape from Sobibor that was, you know, it illustrates the escape and, and partially uh, their story and then talking. And so the, I always felt like that was their job. I wasn't mm -hmm. really going to step on their thing, you know, like that's important for people to hear directly from them. But um, yeah, earlier this year, I was invited for Yom HaShoah for the Holocaust Remembrance Day to give a speech in, by the Jewish Federation in New Haven um, for that day, which I'd never done something like that. And it was the first time that they ever had somebody of my generation mm -hmm. um, give a speech it generally was survivors or maybe like children who are in hiding or people born like right after the war. And so um, I think we are in a time of, of sort of this next generation doing that work. And I guess for me, the legacy is really that, you know, there's, I relate to this differently as a third generation or if you call me second or third generation, but um, as a grandchild of survivors, uh, I relate to this in a different way than my grandparents did who experienced the trauma themselves. So when I'm invited to go to Poland, yeah, it's difficult, but I can go, right? Mm -hmm. It's not going back to the place of the murder, like where mm -hmm. I witnessed the murder of my own parents, right? Which is what it would be for my grandparents. So I can stand there and it's very intense, but it's not like my personal memory to have mm -hmm. been in, a, in very horrible trauma there. And so when, as an example, when this group buildings uh, approached me about wanting to do this award. And I, my first thought is, you know, what would my grandparents say? And the first thing that I think they would say is we want to have nothing to do with Poland, you know? Mm -hmm. And I told them that I was like, this is what my grandparents would say. We want to have nothing to do with this. Um, but then that's when I have to step into my generation's role and think about I get why my grandparents wouldn't want to focus their energy there, why they focused their energy here, why they did things like go to the press or go to, you know, testify against Nazis in court so that there was documentation, but why they might not want to put their energy into making sure that the Polish people who now live and go to school around Sobibor were getting education. Like that's mm. probably not going to be their first priority. Mm. But I think as uh that's when I can step into my hat as my generation and say, here is a group that is actually doing really meaningful work uh, with German people and also with Polish people around acknowledging these crimes that happened by their people on their land. And in Poland, the reason they want to do this, this award in Poland is that 
the Polish government is really a fascist government right now. They mm. have never really acknowledged their crimes. They've, they've even last year, they passed a, a law saying nobody could say it was a Polish, that they were Polish crimes. It always had to say mm-hmm. German Nazi occupied Poland and kind mm. of say, um, obviously there had to be corroboration in order for things to happen, right? And, and yes, it's different to be occupied and forced to do things than to willingly like create that genocide on your own, but it, you're not innocent in doing that. And so um, Poland, there's a rise of fascism in Poland. There's a lack of any kind of support for education for them outside of a very few areas. Mm. There's really a, a lack of um, understanding and support of what's going on. And even the German government, I think they had originally sort of funded um, keeping Auschwitz, uh, making Auschwitz a place that people could come and visit but hadn't actually given money to support some of these other sites, which of which mm. there are many, many, right. um, so that people could understand sort of the breadth of what had happened in all these different places. So um, I think for me, that's where there's the, you know, coming in as this next generation and how do we hold that responsibility? And, and so for me, it's also about connecting what is going on in Germany now, you know, and how, how to not only look at what happened back then, but as people are doing this uh, learning about how genocide happens, how fascism mm-hmm. rises, um, how people support the suffering of other people and de- dehumanize people, how we can connect that to the ways that's happening today, whether it's around people who are black, people who are recent immigrants, people who are Turkish, you know, and where whatever the dynamics are in different countries um, and the importance of doing that. Mm. So. So I just want to say people are listening to 103.5 WNHH in New Haven, Connecticut. And this is the Table Underground. And I'm Tegan Engel. And we're talking today with myself and Anru Hafkenny about a trip I recently took to Berlin, Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about speaking. Um, Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, being asked to speak. Um, and I remember since I was there, <laughs> um, not at the speech itself, but in your preparation for it. And it was challenging. What was, yeah. so as the first, you know, third generation kind of grandchild of, of Holocaust survivors and also your being the grandchild of your particular grandparents, what was challenging about um, that speech for you? Yeah. So I'm a, I'm someone who uh, I can't let go of my perspective on oppression and genocide and justice. It doesn't disappear ever, not because like of my own comfort or the comfort of other people. Mm. And so for me, issues like the oppression of Palestinian people and things that I know about that and witnessed firsthand about that mm-hmm. uh, are not things that I can stay silent about. Things around... Um, the way our laws have been used to put black folks in prison and, and, mm-hmm. and imprison people for poverty that has been created by our government, by our housing policy, by our, our job policies, by other, other things. So if I'm being asked to get up and speak about my grandparents' story, survival mm-hmm. story and about the Holocaust, I can't not speak about how that's impacted me. That's why I'm being asked to talk, right? And I can't right. not talk about how that um, affects how I, that, that I'm not a Zionist, that, I, that mm. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a pro-Israel uh, person, that I um, don't hesitate to speak out around all these other injustices. Mm. And so knowing that that is not the mainstream in American Jewish uh, in circles, there certainly are lots of like radical leftist Jews who, who mm. feel the same as I do, but in sort of mainstream kind of Jewish federation JCC, you know, whatever, all these kind of mainstream American Jewish, uh, you know, European generally focused Jewish spaces, um, those things, they tend to be very pro-Israel and tend to sort of not pay attention to um, the way that these injustices do happen. And and I was scared to get up in front of folks who I don't really know. They're mm-hmm. not my community, you know, and knowing that I needed to speak to these things, but not sure... Um, I want the point to me was I'm being asked to do this on Holocaust Remembrance Day. So it's not a moment to just get up and make a political statement. It's a mm-hmm. moment to think about how do I how do I honor this moment and these memories and also stay true to these messages that are core to me about 
Holocaust remembrance and about uh, this legacy. And so I, that was really difficult to figure out how to do that in a way that wasn't um, overshadowing the importance of that day um, and the legacy and remembrance of all the people who've died, um, but also to be true to to those social justice beliefs. And I, and I think what I came to is the importance of really talking about my personal experience and talking about this charge that we have as Jews to for tikkun olam, which is to repair the world. And I take that very seriously. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's just Jews who do that. I think every culture <laughs> does that and calls it different things. But it this name, this word, uh, this phrase of repairing the world, it's not about putting Band-Aids on, right? It's about repairing. And yeah. so if we're going to repair something, we have to look at what's actually broken. We have to look mm-hmm. at like what's the root cause of why these things are happening and face up to that and not perpetuate it. Mm-hmm. And so how to really talk about that in in the context of a Holocaust Remembrance Day. So I was really nervous. I was nervous <laughs> to step out. And I yes. think, you know, that's normal, normal to be nervous when uh, you're saying something, you know, that level of uncomfortability is what I should have felt. And, and luckily, I think it was received well. I think mm-hmm. because I spoke about it through my personal experience, people can't really debate my personal experience. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so in the end, I think it was good, but that's why it was hard. Yeah, well, you're... you're it can be kind of internally or interpersonally, right? If someone's been hurt and they're talking about recovering from that hurt, um, to bring any other complexity into that is really challenging because some people can acknowledge that and like, oh yes, like I was hurt this way and maybe I hurt someone else or I can't look at that or um, there's complexity in that. There's complexity in our lives. And I, you know, I I really appreciated your struggle with how to honor this legacy how to honor and respect um, the survival or the all of the challenges that are embedded in the Holocaust and tied in with whiteness and Jews in, in the United States and what is this, this kind of state of Israel and people and the difference between distinctions between kind of a state and state policy and people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really appreciated the, the ways that you really held all that complexity and, mm-hmm. and was able to speak to it really from your heart and not from some, an intellectual analysis. And this right. is why, <laughs> and really like these are, cause these are my people and this is where I come from. And these are literally like my grandparents and this is what I've been told. It's what I've been taught even as right, it's different, right? Your expression of that is also different than what your and how your grandparents express right. that. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Like as you're talking and I'm thinking about yesterday, I was, talking to our dear friend Leah Peniman of Soul Fire Farm. And she often says to me, like, Tegan, you have such a big heart. You know, like, <laughs> how did you go and work with these Germans who are doing this? Like, how difficult is that to do? And, you know, thinking about um, black folks here who are working with white people who are trying mm-hmm. to just start to come to terms with, yeah. with what it means to be have white privilege or, or benefit from their family's legacy of, of either directly or even indirectly just by being a white person in the society. And And sometimes it's like, you know, a lot of people when your family has, you know, the truth of these genocides and these traumas that um, people can really have this hardened heart around Mm -hmm. stuff. And I, for some reason, have this exact opposite. Like my heart is so open and vulnerable and to the point where like growing up, it was it was crippling for me how much I cared for every bit of suffering that I saw everywhere. Like Mm. the images of suffering that I've seen in my life, like flash in my brain regularly, like random things from when I was five or something. And I don't really understand how that is my legacy, right? Like how that is my response Mm. to growing up in this family that witnessed this kind of trauma, but it is. And I think that it, um, that really deep love for people is, somehow gave me this incredible feeling of optimism about what's possible when you really like care about people and see people and, and listen to people and try to build, you know, obviously there's so much wrong in our world, but, but somehow I got that, that piece of this, this legacy. I think that's really important. I mean, love is really important, Yeah. right? People remembering that we're human beings and we like, we're all impacted and by these systems, but I was, I was talking with someone this morning about, about that as well, the ways that, you know, I might, um, like I, in a, in a general stereotypical way, like I could say, well, as a black person, like I'm tired of white people and white people, they need to get their stuff together. Yet as a man, I might easily acknowledge, oh, this is the way that patriarchy really harms me in my heart. 
mm-hmm. right? Yet, and I really would need a connection to women and gender nonconforming people and trans people, like in my humanness, even not to do the work for me, but to understand that I'm also struggling. So as a, like in this position of, of being a male, I was like, yes, I need this other, and, and I welcome these other voices of people mm-hmm. who are on the receiving end of oppression. But oftentimes as a receiver, right, as like, oh, as a black person, I don't want anything to do with them. Mm-hmm. And so the disconnect there, like, well, if I want this relationship and this healing support to address a system that we're all in, can I also extend that to white people who are also in this same system mm-hmm. and are being dehumanized in a different way? And I was kind of sharing the importance of that, the importance of can we extend this this connection to humanness while we are really paying attention to these kind of relative systems of oppression and hurt that land on people in very different ways. Right. And this person like hadn't really thought of that. Um, and so it was, it was a really powerful moment to be able to say like, how, like how free can we be? Right. Yeah. And, and real I, different things need to happen, but like how free can we really and be? And sometimes I think you can be that way and sometimes not. Right. Yeah, well, it like depends. And, still and they're keep both yourself safe. They're both right. Yeah. 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 This isn't this isn't the kind of panacea of everyone is just beautiful. Right. <laughs> and, um, well, it makes me think about another point that I wanted to talk about around traveling to Germany and what mm-hmm. that experience is. So I remember, um, I'm not sure where exactly, somewhere in the U.S. I was when I was a teenager. I was in an elevator, like I think I was in a hotel somewhere or something. I was in an elevator, and it happened to be just me. And then there were these two guys, large white German men, and they were speaking in German. And I got so triggered and scared, like here yeah. having that experience. And I think growing up, you know, watching movies about the Holocaust, hearing all these stories, like, right. um, and growing up in this country, I mean, I have similar triggers around seeing like white people who look sort of obvious kind of uh, ways that we think of racist looking in America. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So like, uh, in very stereotypical kind of ways, I have similar triggers, but, and I'm a white person, but I mean, this feeling of, of Germans and, and I have been to Germany before and in the past I've, it's been scary for me. Like when I'm mostly around white Germans and, um, hearing German being spoken, uh, it does, I have to like actively remind myself like these, this is now, this is not the 1940s. Seeing signs to Dachau and Auschwitz and, you know, street signs of these things right yeah on the highway right (laughs) so uh you know i was sort of preparing myself to go i also have friends and family who live there who i love and um so i you know i understand like there's lots of other kind of modern normal ways to be there that are not but it but it has typically been sort of challenging for me and so this time when i was going going by myself and going to do this work around the holocaust uh, which generally i've done more in poland than in germany um I was thinking like, where, you know, where should I go? And so um, I decided to actually stay knowing that there's a really huge Turkish population in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you and I talked about this a lot. I was like, let me go and stay in a neighborhood where it's not just like white German people, but where there's like a huge Turkish community, where there's Af- African immigrants, where there's like just a, a diversity of folks so that it doesn't feel as triggering and upsetting as mm-hmm. for me as, as in the past what I've experienced. And so I stayed in a neighborhood called Kreuzberg and on the edge of Kreuzberg in Nulkon, Nulkon, which is really hard to say, <laughs> um, and learned a lot about that area. So it, it, it was really great to be in this area that felt really different to me than, than other times I've been in Germany. And also to learn this history where uh, I think in the 60s, Turkish workers started coming over to Germany uh, as guest workers because after the war, there just weren't enough people there to do all the work that needed to be done. And so they welcomed Turkish people in, but as guest workers, and they sort of isolated them. And they said, we don't really expect you to learn the language because you're only going to be here temporarily. Mm. And like, let's give you this area over here to live in. And so for many, many years that became, it's actually the largest Turkish community outside of Turkey is in Berlin in Germany. Mm. And um, they've now been there for many generations. And so uh, but you have this dynamic where there are some people who have been there for generations who didn't learn German because they were the first wave that came over who were told they didn't need to learn German and weren't given support to do that. Um, but it's a very vibrant community and there's like Turkish markets everywhere. There's now also people from Syria and from other Arabic countries. So sometimes you people speaking Turkish, sometimes Arabic. Um, 
and there's, you know, a, amazing food. I got to eat incredible food there, which was great. And <laughs> go to the markets, go to the markets. And yeah, I mean, it's really, there's, there's people smoking kind of the water pipes. Um, and they're not like white touristy people smoking them. They're like, mm-hmm. you know, Arabic men sitting on a street cafe smoking them. And I was like, wow, I'm in, I'm in Berlin. Like, this is surprising mm. at the same time that area is starting to gentrify. And so you also have this dynamic of like, little cafes and lots of people speaking English and, and people getting starting to get pushed out, like the rent starting to go up. And so it was very reminiscent of the years that I lived in New York in the nineties and sort right. of the wave of, of um, that was shepherded in through Giuliani and kind of that money that was coming in. And as gentrification really started um, pushing people out of, of long standing communities there. So that was pretty, hmm. pretty intense to witness. Uh, but it did feel I was really glad to get to witness that part of, of Germany and that, that community, the diversity and strength of that community. Well, that's, that's something you love. I mean, <laughs> we're on the table underground, right? It's, <laughs> yes, it's, it's really connecting to like people in their lives, yeah. right? And, and the ways that uh, food and public spaces gets to be expressed and experienced where you get to go place and like, what, what are these things together? And what do you, what are they eating and how do they make this here? And how is it different? And, um, yeah, all the big things and small things, um, and then it's it's how that helps you and allows you to then be in other parts of Germany and other parts of Berlin with people um, kind of more at ease. Right? Like, oh, yeah. I can I can be here. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, what yeah, else? Sure. What else really helped you um, to be there? Because you said like you went there by yourself. Yeah, right? I do like traveling by myself. So I know <laughs> some people get like freaked out by. It. I mean, I I missed you and our kids for sure, but but it's also exciting to travel. Um, so yeah, I mean, the first thing I do when I land somewhere, first of all, before I go there, I try to research stuff, just looking at Google maps and seeing like, where are the markets? Where's the subway it's street views, street view. Yeah. I yeah. do street views. I like, I, I look up a map of the subway system and learn how to use the subway before I get there a little bit. Um, and you know, sort of, I, I put, I save things on Google maps so that I can, even if I don't have Wi-Fi where I am, I can look, I can see the map and, and kind of sometimes if I'm going somewhere very remote, I'll print it out, but just so that I can see like what's in my neighborhood, you know? And so the first thing I do, I mean, I actually got there and went to sleep for an hour and a half because I had an overnight flight with a a transfer in the middle of the night, did not sleep. So slept for a quick minute. And then I just started walking around the neighborhood. And so just listening and looking, going to the food stores, just, you know, getting a sense of like what's around. It It was hard for me there because... I don't speak Arabic and I don't really, I barely speak any German. And generally when I go to a country, I try to learn enough of a language to have basic communication. But uh, given that I, uh, these are not languages that are my, of the many languages that I can speak some of, these are not two that I, that I really speak. And just, it was such a short trip and at a hard time of year for me to really give time to learning language. That was a little challenging because usually I'd start talking to all the shopkeepers and everybody. So that was hard. Uh, but there were many people who spoke English, so that was good. Um, yeah, so food, getting something yummy to eat, getting walking around, you know, all the blocks around the neighborhood is super important for me. And then there's a couple other things. So mm-hmm. I like to go get flowers. I remember I did this when I first went to Poland. I had like no money, but I went and bought like one little flower, I think like a daisy or a tulip, or sometimes if I'm somewhere where they're growing and I can like pick mm-hmm. wildflowers just put them in a water glass wherever I'm staying just gives a feeling of joy and life where mm-hmm. I am. And, yeah. uh, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of money. It could be just, just a little bit, but it, um, really helps the place I'm staying feel more positive. And then another thing, um, you know, stuffed animals in our family are stuffed animals, what <laughs> cuddle friends, cuddle friends, as we call them are super important in our family. So, yeah, I have this little owl that you know called Ola, and Ola actually speaks Spanish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so having this little tiny owl that I gave to our daughter this time, but usually to all the people in our family to sleep with and kind of fill up with love before I go and then take take Ola with me um, and have Ola sleeping with me at night. It just, like, um, just made me feel not alone. Like, mm-hmm. it's amazing how much a little a little stuffed animal, a little cuddle friend can can come to life and really mm. feel like a living, breathing representation of, of our family and our love. Mm. So that, that definitely helped me a lot. Just mm. going, going to sleep with Ola. Yes. 
and I, and so, I remember the the leading up to it, the importance of our daughter like cuddling with Ola and like filling Ola up. <laughs> yeah, mm. yeah. So that's that's important. And uh, sometimes I bring like a piece of fabric with me, like it could uh, be a sarong or something. But uh, if, if the sheets where I'm staying are really scratchy or just you know needing something that smells and feels familiar. Um, that, that often helps me as well. So th- mm. those are some of the basic things. And um, yeah, I think just walking around, just really getting, I like to go somewhere and really feel like, what is life like here? Just mm-hmm. observing and trying to just participate in regular life a little more than than kind of touristy things. I, I'm much more interested in just mm. seeing, experiencing what's going on uh, on the street, in the markets, mm. stuff like that. That, that. that just reminds me of this, of a thread through this of like the importance of place and the importance of people's lives, like the ordinariness and the beauty that's in that ordinariness, mm-hmm. um, both of people finding each other, right? Your, your Oma and Opa finding each other. Um, the, the ordinariness of the kind of horrors that can also be in there and the ordinariness of love and being in community and just walking, like really orienting yourself and the importance of being able to orient yourself to, to land, to place, mm-hmm. to people and communities. And that's something that both in all these stories is certainly there, but it's it's so, as someone who has known you for a little while now, it's such an important part um, that I see in you is that that connectivity of people and place and honoring that. Like, I'm the visitor, so show me, help me, feed me, talk to me. How do we make this, right, in all those ways? Well, and like, I approach it less as like, me 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 and more as like yes. observing like what's going on yeah but it's it, you yeah. in it right it's yeah. the not as kind of consumer but like i'm honoring this place right like i'm i'm the not visitor like the kind of extracting consumer but like i'm valuing what you have mm-hmm. and so i want to join i want mm-hmm. to enter into that and understand that and connect with you even though we don't speak the same language mm-hmm. or like you're using this instead of this um as a way of really deeply honoring and having that that big heart that um, that you spoke of and that mm-hmm. you clearly have. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to share about this trip, about um, what's happening now? Yeah. I mean, hopes? I think we covered a lot of the things. Uh, this will be up on the table underground. And when these photos are released uh, next year, I'll certainly be posting more information about that. Um and I think, you know, there's so much work to do in connecting this kind of remembrance of the Holocaust or other genocides mm-hmm. and acknowledging the truth of those and bringing it into what is going on in our world today. Mm-hmm. And that that work is the same work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so important to me that when we think about saying never again, it's not about um, just about my anti-Semitism, people. just yeah. about my people. Um, that's not what this is. This is about never again for anyone, mm-hmm. you know, and um I guess one of the things that that I think about that I hope happens in the future is that as we're doing Holocaust remembrance work, that we're also not just talking about um, Jews, that we remember all the other people who were killed. Mm -hmm. And it's not to diminish um, that, yes, more Jews were killed, but it's to acknowledge everyone who's killed, you know? So often there are six candles lit for the six, to represent the six million. Let's light another candle for the other people who were killed, the people who were disabled, who were gay, who were in opposition and fighting mm-hmm. back against the Nazis, you know, right. and, and others. And so let's, let's acknowledge the wholeness of that. And let's look at those same dynamics that created that horror. And how right. is that happening now? How are we participating? How are we complicit? Yeah. Um, what can we do to stand up? Who are we up? dehumanizing? Yeah. What who are we are dehumanizing? Which is happening, yeah. has always happened. You know, I hear a lot of people talking about like in these times, yes, Trump is like horrible and, <laughs> and traumatizing <laughs> And like, he's just exposing things that have gone on in this country forever, you know? And so in some ways it is no different in certain ways um, because traumas and horrible things and and dehumanizing of people and killing of people and and not letting people in the country and Mm -hmm. keeping them locked up, like those things have happened over and over and over by lots of people for generations. And so, you know, how do we acknowledge that and, and do our part? whether it's small or large to work, to work on those things. I think that the last thing I want to say is to really honor, 
like this work that you're doing, right? So the table underground is this expression of these values that you've been talking about that you've inherited um, from your grandparents, from your opa and opa, and the ways that you're really lifting up other people's voices. And you're mm. lifting up their experiences so that they they both speak for themselves and there's a conversation that's happening and the uplifting as well as you getting to connect with all of it. Mm. Right? It's not just kind of, I'll just kind of disappear and it'll like be uplifted over there, but like I'm in it, like we're in it together and like let's let's honor all that and be excited about it. And like the life, right? I get the flowers. I'm going to put the flowers over here. I'm in a strange land and like this is life affirming. Mm. To find those things, even in horrific and difficult times, to stay connected to the very things that are life affirming that can help us to go on. And so I really love that, you know, opportunities for you to share a little bit about yourself in the context even of this podcast and uh, form of expression in the table underground. Thank you as always for seeing me from my (laughs) full self. So thank you for joining me today and for having this sort of heavy conversation. Heavy and light. Heavy and light. So people can uh, check this out on any podcasting site. It'll rebroadcast again tonight at seven o'clock on WNHH 103.5 FM in New Haven, Connecticut. And shortly it will be up on the tableunderground.com. You'll be able to hear it there, see a few photos, uh, follow us on the social medias, and thank you for listening. Thank you.